Well, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. We're going to continue in the study of this incredible Gospel. And the story we have in front of us this morning is, again, another story within a story. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. It starts in chapter 6, verse 6b, and it continues on through the end of verse 30. And so to see the story within a story, as we read through this this account, you need to notice that it begins with the twelve, Jesus' teaching and his commission to the twelve in the first six, seven verses. And then in the middle, the bulk of it is devoted to the story of John the Baptist and his commission and how it went with him as he was commissioned to preach the gospel and to preach repentance. And then it concludes in verse 30 with the, the apostles coming back to Christ to report on how their ministry went. And so that's the story within a story. The contrast could be seen between the twelve and John the Baptist. Follow along as I read, starting in Mark 6, verse 6b. Mark writes, And he, Christ, was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it and his name had become well known. For people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I had beheaded, has risen. For John himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, She pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. As I mentioned, this story contains a 
Interpolation is a really fancy word to say a Markin sandwich. <laughs> it's a story within a story. On the outside, you have the story of Jesus and his commission to the twelve. Inside that story, by way of contrast, you have the story of John the Baptist who was commissioned to go preach and to go and preach repentance. There are some similarities and there are some contrasts. And the parallel is accentuating the, con- uh, the contrast. So what's common to both stories is the mandate to preach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Particularly, what's highlighted here in this story is the requirement that we preach repentance. And that's where the parallels stop. The response of the disciples to their commission to preach repentance and the response of John the Baptist to his commission to preach repentance are radically different. If you've been with us through the study of Mark, you'll remember that this was something that's been a part of uh, the, the gospel ministry since the very beginning. Let's go back by way of a quick review and look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. When Mark describes the forerunner, John the Baptist, he summarizes his ministry this way in chapter 4, verse 1, after quoting his introduction from Isaiah and Malachi, which talk about this forerunner. Mark himself says in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a summary on John's approach. That's the summary of his ministry. It can be summarized as a ministry of preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus comes along and begins his earthly and public ministry, his instructing ministry, his teaching ministry, Mark can summarize it in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He summarizes it this way. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. That's the good news of God. God's very good proclamation of God's own arrival on earth to take care of the curse and reverse the curse as was promised in the Old Testament. And here's the summary of that content in verse 15. Saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is preaching the same message as John the Baptist. Now, as it says in verse 14, John had already been taken into custody at this particular point in Jesus' ministry. And one of the first things he does, as we saw in verses 16 to 20, is he starts to collect disciples in a formal, in a more formal manner, uh, men who can continue on in the preaching capacity and in the footsteps of John the Baptist, because no matter where the gospel goes, there has to be an articulation of the truth and a call to repentance. And so he selects four men. And in verse 17, Mark says that Jesus tells the first four who were called, he says to them, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. They were fishermen, and there they are fishing. And he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to be pursuing souls and calling them to repent. In chapter 2, verse 14, we hear another man get called to follow Christ in this capacity. His name is Levi. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, chapter 2, verse 14, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And And this continues all the way to chapter 3. And if you remember in um, verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12. The purpose statement of these disciples is so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And then it goes on to list the 12. And so by this time you have all 12 in a more formalized, recognized, official capacity. And their job is to spend time with Christ, to be discipled by Christ personally, so that they can go out and preach and have authority to cast out demons. And as we've been studying the the Gospel of Mark so far, the first eight chapters are devoted to this shocking identity. He is the Son of God. Mark tells us that in the very first verse. No one seems to get it except the demons. The religious leaders, chapters 1 through 3, they don't get it. The people of Israel, chapters 3 through 6, they don't get it. What about the disciples, chapters 6 through 8? Are they going to recognize his identity? And the very first story in this new section that we're launching in this morning about the potential unbelief or hardness of heart of the disciples 
revolves around their commission to go and preach a gospel of repentance. And so when we dive in here in chapter 6, verse 6b, we are looking at their commission to go and preach. In verse 12, it says, they went out and preached that men should repent. John's ministry was one of repentance. Jesus' ministry was one of preaching repentance. And the disciples' ministry was one of preaching repentance. Repentance is a word here. It's a, the original uh, word in the Greek is a compound word, and it would ma- basically mean a change of mind. It means to change one's mind, and not in the sense of just to make a better decision after making an arbitrary decision about how to spend your afternoon or where, you're gonna eat a, where you want to eat a meal or make a reservation for an, e- an evening. This is more of a complete change of the inner man. It's a change of mindset, a change of heart, a change of the inner disposition. It's a change of life empowered from within. It's a transition that goes from an entirely different worldview, one that goes from how I used to worship. Either I used to worship self and I used to worship creature. Now to being, to repenting would mean to have a change of mind to worshiping something new. I'm worshiping, in this case, of course, God. It's a change of mind regarding purpose, reason for existence. It's a change of mind regarding everything about God, self, world, motives. All of this is changed in our lives as our heart is changed. Repentance is not a change of externals. It's not just a change of behaviors. Of course, without a change of behaviors, there's no repentance. It's, but it is a change of behavior because of a change of the inner disposition that produced a new life. As our hearts are changed by virtue of repentance, we go from living and loving self to living and loving, living for and loving God. One stops doing what self wants and one starts doing what God wants. And before we dive into this story, I want to give you one quick example of John the Baptist and how he did this. And let's let's turn over to the Gospel of Luke for a second. And let's look, look at Luke chapter and I believe we looked at this very briefly back when we were in chapter, chapter 1, but it'll be worthy of reminding ourselves what the preaching of repentance looked like. Here's, here's an example. And let's pick it up in verse 7. Luke 3, 7. Luke writes, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so notice in verse 8, it's, it would be incorrect to assume that repentance could merely be an inward change. Anybody could profess to have an inward change, but if their life is not actually changed on the outside, if there are no fruits that would be consistent with that inner change, then that repentance is either illegitimate or totally suspect. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say for yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And so you can't claim spiritual privilege, you can't claim your heritage, you can't claim religious background. None of that means anything when it comes to repentance. Verse 9, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The real proof of repentance is good fruit, good deeds. And so the crowds get it. In verse 10, they start asking John questions. They say to him, well, what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. There's fruit in keeping with repentance in all of these areas where these ungodly people would have abused privileges and circumstances for selfish gain. And so he calls people to repent before wrath comes upon them. That's the message. Let me give you an example of how Paul articulates this. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, there's a, a theological description of repentance here. And, and this is just by way of reminder, so that when we dive into our story this morning, this is fresh in our minds. Um, Paul says it this way to the Thessalonians, verse 9 and 10. Speaking of um, the people in Macedonia and Achaia, that's the they in verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And they report how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And so he describes this repentance as a total 180. It's a 180 course correction. It goes from formerly having a life oriented toward worshiping idols, whatever form of worship serves me, to turning uh, to serve and worship the living and true God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's a, that's a rich theological two-verse description of repentance. And this is important to keep in mind as we dive into our story. Let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Why, why did I mention all of that? You think, okay, well, it's, it's a story about repentance. Well, close. It's better. It's a story about the cost of preaching repentance. I titled this, The Cost of Evangelism. And I want the doctrine of repentance to be clear in our minds. And we're going to look at uh, the radical the radical distinction here that we see between the disciples early on in their training and John the Baptist. This is important because we need to understand how we must die to self if we are going to be faithful to follow Christ in the ministry that he's called us to right here in Phoenix. To be faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot stop short of calling our dear loved ones our neighbors and our friends and family members, to repent. The cost of evangelism is really shown in these two contradictory responses. Christ calls these 13 to preach repentance. And you've got 12 at the beginning and the end, and you've got the other one, John the Baptist, alone, alone in the middle. And his response really shows us the positive response, what we need to to model as we, if we're going to be faithful to, to Christ as we preach repentance. And so let's pick it up in verse 6b. He was going around the villages teaching. And the point is, is that this is just Jesus' common ministry. He, he could not be deterred from preaching truth to the lost sheep of Israel. And he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he continues to do that. He's been doing that ever since chapter 1. Verse 7 dives into this particular story and says, and he summoned the twelve and he begins to send them out in pairs. So now he's been modeling it. They've been following him and now he's sending them out to do what he's been modeling for them to do uh, for the past six chapters. He sends them out in pairs. Two by two, literally. And he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. And that's exactly what he mentioned back in Mark chapter 3. He gave a, it was a two-fold purpose statement so that he might spend time with them and that he might send them out to preach and have authority over demons. And this is an apostolic function, of course, and we've talked about that before. They had authority over demons. And other people who were not apostles and who were not given that authority tried as much, and you can read a horrific example of that in Acts 19 if you want to see what happens when somebody who is not an apostle, who has not been given this authority by Jesus, what happens when they try to do that. But these are the apostles, and they are actually going to be endowed with new revelation, and they're going to be writing the epistles of the New Testament for the church. And they have, of course, this supernatural uh, gifting, and that's part of their ministry. But notice in verse 8 what happens. This is an interesting instruction. He instructs them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, and he says, don't even put on two tunics. And this is just very, very prohibitive. It's very restrictive. You get to this point in the story and you're thinking, okay, what is that? What's going on here? Now, certainly, Jesus is paring them down so that they have to live in a state that is completely dependent on the Lord. As you look at this, what's allowed and what's not allowed, it's kind of interesting because if we compared it to some parallel accounts, at first glance, they can look like they're quite distinct 
And when you read um, Matthew and you read Luke, it sounds like virtually everything is prohibited. But here, Mark gives some exceptions. And he says, um, yeah, go ahead and wear sandals on your feet. And also go ahead and uh, have a, a staff. You can, you can have those things. And then when you read um, Matthew, it says, don't acquire these things. And then when you read Luke, he even says, uh, in Luke, uh, um, in chapter 9, it even says, um, don't have a staff. And so, what do we do with that? Well, it's actually quite simple uh, to compare Mark with Matthew. That's a simple one. Because Matthew actually says, don't acquire these things. And so he's describing, you're going to go out on this journey, and you're going to go relatively empty-handed, and you're not going to be thinking about stockpiling more provisions or acquiring more resources to make your journey more comfortable. You are going to just go with what you've got and don't acquire all these other things. And so the issue is a prohibition against acquiring. But when you get to Luke, it does get a little bit more tricky because he uses the same verb. And he says, don't take up a staff. And that's actually the same verb here used in, in Mark chapter, in verse, um, in verse 8. And as I looked at that, it, looked, it looks like what, what's happening here is, this is, uh, uh, you know, obviously Jesus would have been speaking to the disciples in Aramaic, and so they both translate this instruction back into Greek. And that word actually has a lot of elasticity. Uh, in fact, the first two definitions of that word, one would be to, to just take something along that you already have, and the other one would be to take up something that you don't have. Those are the first two definitions of that word, so they can both be used that way. And so it would actually be a very suitable Greek word for both of those exhortations. If Christ is saying, don't acquire for yourself a new staff, just take the one you've got, that's all you need. If it breaks, you're trusting the Lord. Don't, don't be stockpiling and don't be bringing along all this luggage to think, we've got to be prepared for whatever might happen on this journey. If that was what Jesus said, this would be a suitable translation for both. In fact, it's very interesting. When you look at what the people of God are called to in Exodus 12, back at the Passover. Just listen to this. Exodus 12, 11 says, Now you shall eat the Passover in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. Haste, it is the Lord's Passover. And that's very interesting. Just to think of the, the haste required of the people of God as they're, they're not sitting there planning to, uh, you know, some vacation or some journey that's going to be comfortable. They're planning to it's the exodus. They are on their way out. The Lord is providing for them. And it is just miraculous at the national level. And that's what's happening here with the disciples. They're getting stripped down to everything until they don't have resources to fall back on. They're going to have to trust the Lord for everything. And that's the way it needs to be at the beginning of their ministry. This is Christ's seminary. These guys are in seminary. And our own seminary students, we've got, we got seven here at this campus, uh, our own seminary students, they know what that's like. It's like you're sitting there trying to make decisions about how many books you can buy before you've hindered the grocery budget. You're going to be, you know, eating ramen for the last uh, week of the month. And so you're making those kind of decisions, and that's just part of the training. Imagine going on a journey and somebody saying, okay, but you can't bring your luggage on the plane. Okay, no luggage. Well, at least i got to carry on. I just have to, I just have to trim it down. No, no carry on. Oh, no carry on. Okay, well, at least I can just stick some, stick some snacks in my, in my coat pocket. No, no snacks, no food, no lunch. Okay, I guess I'll be... Buying everything when I get there with my credit card. No, nope, no money, no purse, no money, no cash, no credit card. You're thinking, well, I'm going to jump on this plane with nothing but my ID. And that's it? Yeah, that's it. They're going to have to trust the Lord. And this is, of course, not perpetual. We fast forward to the end of, um, of their ministry um, in the Gospels, like in Luke 22, verse 35. Uh, they even ask him, can we bring these things? And he says, yeah, what do you have? And they have a sword and this and a tunic and everything. Oh yeah, that's enough. Bring it. And so it wasn't, the, the problem wasn't having those resources. The issue here is that the early beginning part of their ministry, they're being trained to rely exclusively on Christ. And so now, verse 11, Jesus says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, Shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. This is a symbolic, symbolic gesture. You understand when, when the Jews would shake dust off their feet, that was symbol of an unclean region. 
It was a symbol of something being unclean. And so if the disciples go to a town and they start preaching the gospel, uh, Christ's gospel, hey, God's come to earth. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Your sins can be forgiven. We, We found the Messiah. He's here. And that town says, yeah, right. The symbolic gesture then, you go outside, and once you, get, once you hit city limits, you shake the dust off of your sandals, you shake the dust out of your garment, you shake all that stuff off as a symbol. This place is unclean. They've rejected truth. They are in their sin. I don't care if it's inhabited by Jews. It is unclean. It's like a pagan village from our perspective. And that's their ministry. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, you can turn here if you want. I mean, you, know, you can look here later if you want. I'm not going to turn here. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, it describes Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he, he sends the disciples to go make preparations in Samaria, and they don't accept him, and so he has to go make other plans, and he goes elsewhere. And so you can see Jesus even operate according to this principle in Luke chapter 9. Here's some examples of this. Acts chapter 13, verse 50, in Pisidian Antioch, Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. I mean, they'd been preaching in the synagogue, and the synagogue began uh, getting jealous when they saw all these Gentiles responding to the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And so as a result, in Acts 13.51, they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. It was symbolic of their rejection of the, of the gospel. In Acts 18.5, in Corinth, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Talk about salt in a wound. Synagogue rejects the preaching of their own Messiah. And so he's like, You guys are unclean. I'm out of here. And he goes and hangs out with a Gentile. And that's the symbol. That's the symbolism. This act virtually declared a village, a city, or a region to be pagan, regarding its dirt as symbolically unclean in its refusal to worship the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and refusal to repent from its sin. So that's the mandate. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. And here's the summary of their ministry. Two short, sweet verses. Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. And the way Mark tells this, it's very, it's very clear in the original. Uh, uh, if, if we could just read this story like a Greek reader, it's very fascinating that Mark makes that the action point of the whole story, and he makes verse 13 the background commentary. Verse 13 is important to understand so that we can make sense of what, 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 what he's doing by putting John the Baptist in the middle of this story. Well, we, we wouldn't even be ready for what John the Baptist is about to do if we didn't understand that he says, look, you can summarize their ministry that they're preaching that men should repent. And you also need to know this, they also were casting out many demons and they were anointing many sick people with oil and they were healing these people and that's happening as well. And you need to know that reader so that when we get to the verse 30, we understand the problem. That's a lot of authority. That's a lot of privilege. It's a lot of unique power. In verse 14, we have this radical, abrupt, well, I was about to say abrupt transition. There is no transition. It's just this abrupt shift to Herod and John the Baptist. In verse 14, King Herod, he heard of it. Uh, because his name, Jesus' name, had become well-known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And Mark is just diving into the inner monologue of Herod. His own superstition is coming out in this response. He's hearing about Jesus' ministry, and his guilty conscience couples with his imagination and starts to create this conclusion. I, I've already killed John the Baptist. He, came, he became back from the dead. I know it. He's going to come get me. I mean, this is just... 
And his guilty conscience is burdening him along with his superstition and mysticism. And so that's the conclusion that he comes up with. Now, there's, a, there's plenty of other options. Verse 15, some are saying he's Elijah. Some are saying he's a prophet. Um, when Herod heard of it, he just kept saying, it's John, I know it, it's John. I cut his head off and here he is, doing all this crazy stuff. Now, at that point, we wouldn't even know why he's saying that unless we got the story of the beheading. And that's why verses 17 to 29 is kind of um, a, a background to verses uh, 14 to 16. So verse 17 starts with the word for, and this is explaining why his conscience is so, so guilty and why it's clamoring. Um, he is guilty because of this very story. So let's just dive in here in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on, on, a, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now this Herod right here is Herod Antipas. He's a son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas uh, ruled as the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to 39 AD. And I, um, I, I did a little digging into his relationships here with all of his um, siblings and his half-siblings and his half nieces and nephews, and it gets quite convoluted. But needless to say that when Herod, it says in verse 17 that he married Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Philip is also a son of Herod the Great, but he is a half-brother to Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas and Herod Philip are half-brothers. They also have another half-brother. So, you know, Herod the Great had about 10 wives. So this gets really, really complicated. But there is a third half-brother who had a child uh, who, uh, who had uh, Herodias. So, if you're, if you're following me, Herodias' half-uncle was her first husband. And she divorced her first half-uncle to marry her second half-uncle, Herod, Herod Antipas. Okay, and if that's not clear, just write Herod the Great on a piece of paper and then draw a few circles, and that's the family tree. That's, that's what I had to do this week, and there you go. That's all you need to know. So John, is, he is preaching, uh, verse 18, he had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is bold. This is so bold. I mean, you think about... You think about what, what does it take to say that? It's interesting. I, I, I love the story of uh, Robert the Bruce preaching to King James VI. He was King James VI of Scotland, and he became James I in England when he became a ruler of the United Kingdom later in his, in his life. He was in St. Giles, and he was preaching, and um, King James VI was listening to Robert the Bruce preach. And the way the story is told, it goes like this. The preacher's words had evidently got to the royal conscience and he could not shake them off. He was preaching on sin and the blood of Christ as man's only remedy. And all of these were disturbing subjects that had no place in the king's knowledge. And so... To disguise the unease, King James started to indulge in conversation with his courtiers in tones that could be heard even in the pulpit. And so there he is. I mean, who's going to tell him otherwise? He is the king. So he just starts having his own conversation. He's just like jaw-jacking right there in the cathedral as Robert the Bruce is preaching. On one such occasion, it is said that the preacher deliberately paused until the king was quiet. But when Bruce resumed speaking, so did the king, at which there was silence again in the pulpit. When this happened for the third time, Bruce addressed these words to the talkers. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are at ease. They're quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. That's bold. That's his human king. 
And he's not about to allow his human king to drown out the words of his king. That must have been similar to what John the Baptist did. To point the finger at Herod and say, what you just did is not lawful. It's not permitted. It's not allowed. You are living a life at odds with your creator. You are guilty. So, verse 19, it almost goes without saying, Herodias had a grudge against him. I mean, when you're preaching that kind of message, it is inevitable that somebody who, that when the gospel puts them in, in its crosshairs, they're going to take it personally. So she had a grudge against him and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not do so. And this is fascinating. Look at verse 19. She could not do so. She was not able to kill John the Baptist. Well, she's like the queen. I mean, what's the deal? Like she has all sorts of authority, all sorts of power. Well, it's because of Herod, actually. Verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John. Herod was afraid of John. He was concerned about harming him. And notice the reason why, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So Herod had respect for John, even as John is sitting there pointing the finger at Herod saying, you are living a life that is offensive to your maker. You are guilty and headed to hell. He's sitting there saying, I, 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 can't, I can't argue with the fact that I respect the guy. I mean, he's, everything he says is true. He's probably intrigued by his simplicity. He's probably, there's something foreign about his lack of manipulation or sophistication. He's just out there with truth. He's not saving face. And he knows that he's a, a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He kept him safe. There's a respect there. There's a respect. There's even an intrigue. He even, as it says in verse 20, the second half of this verse, liked to enjoy listening to him. What's so profound about verse 20 is Mark is explaining to us a little bit of the psychology inside Herod. Verse 20b says, when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but, when he, but, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And I even read commentators who said, oh, this is obviously in, you know, in, discongruous. You can't even wed these two statements together. There's nothing discongruous about that at all. Well, which is it? Was he very perplexed by what he heard, or did he enjoy listening to him? And the answer is yes. He was very perplexed, and he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod was very perplexed. Herod was in the crosshairs of the gospel. Herod was living a life that was not lawful. It was not permitted. He was guilty, and he knew it. He had, John the Baptist had an ally in Herod's conscience. That's why hearing the truth is very perplexing. But there was also something about the truth of the message, the simplicity of it, and the power of it, and the sheer audacity of it, that was compelling to him. And it was compelling to him, watch this, listen. It was compelling to Herod, even without repentance. Our Kent Hughes says it well. Here, John the Baptist and Herod Antipas meet in perfect antithesis. John was austere and simple. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John was righteous. Herod was a debauchee. John was a man of immense moral courage. Herod was a man who lived in, relati uh, in spineless relativity. John was a man who kept his conscience and lost his head. Herod was a man who took John's head and lost his own conscience. And that's exactly right. Herod listened gladly, and the reason was not because he watered down the message for Herod. John was not tickling his ears. He wasn't telling him, whispering sweet nothings, calling it divine truths revealed from God that somehow made him feel better about himself. He wasn't watering anything down. But Herod found it compelling for reasons other than being willing to give up his sin. Herod exemplifies the curiosity, the intrigue, the attraction and interest to the gospel that comes, come, can come without willingness to part with one's sins and one's darling little rebellions. 
and all of our guilt. We might look at Herod and think, boy, this is a, this is a sad place to be. He's so unique. Herod is not in a category all, all to his own. It's quite common for sinners to find a message compelling and attractive, even stimulating because of its newness or its loftiness. You know, we, we drive to the Grand Canyon because it's so massive. And then it comes to the preaching of God's word, and there's something so foreign, so massive, so profound, so grandiose. And there might even be things that intrigue and tickle the intellect. There might even be things that aid and abet a guilty conscience, and we feel better after hearing a really sober, profound message from God's word. And we can actually be intrigued and attracted to the preaching of the gospel without repentance. That became proven, verse 21, on a strategic day, a timely day, a suitable day. It was an opportune day for Herodias. That particular day was Herod's birthday. He gave a banquet for his lords and his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, verse 21. Um, This is a a debauched party of the rankest kind. Herod's throwing a birthday party, and all, everybody listed in verse 21, it's all exclusively males. Herodias finds this opportunity to be her prime opportunity to end John's life. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias herself, this is Salome, she came in and danced she pleased Herod. I mean, this is Herodias' plan all along. She plans to appeal to Herod's worldliness, his unrepentant lusts, and she did not miss her mark. She assumed correctly that he would be impressed. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And then the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. It's interesting, in verse 23, it says, And he swore to her, two of the earliest manuscript evidences have the word, he swore extensively, uh, either with many oaths or for a long time. Either one of those would be the sense. And that's probably the original that Mark wrote. And if that's the case, it would not be unreasonable to assume this is the kind of slothering, swearing, and just pouring all over himself of a drunken, inebriated stupor to go along with his party. And so here, this girl hears that offer. She goes out, verse 24, she goes out to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I mean, I don't think she had to think long. I think she planned this whole thing. She's not thinking through all the options. Oh, what are we going to ask for? No, head of John the Baptist. There you go. Immediately, she comes running back in, in a hurry. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And so against his self-loving appreciation for what he got selfishly out of John's preaching, he went ahead with it. There they are in the in the Machiris Palace, it's a, it's the, historically that's where Josephus said that this, he was being held in prison. It's a, a Herodian Palace a few miles east of the Dead Sea in modern day Jordan. That's where he was being held and that's where um, they would have uh, executed him and brought, this whole scene would have taken place. And they sent this executioner down to the basement of that structure that's in ruins now. It brought back his head on a platter. He gave it to the girl, the girl gave it to his mother. When the disciples, verse 29, when the disciples heard about that, that's the disciples of John. That's John's disciples, not the 12 who were out doing their ministry. They heard about it. They came and took away his body, and his body is even a technical term here for corpse. And they took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. That's the end of John's ministry. Jesus called him to preach repentance. He called sinners to repent Regardless of who they were, regardless of their rank, regardless of personal cost, regardless of the implications for his own relationships, his own comfort, his own life, his own death, it did not matter. He was faithful. He counted the cost. He had repented of living his life for self. He was living it for God and God's glory alone. Pick up the story of the disciples, verse 30. It's very quick. The disciples gathered together with Jesus. They come back. They report to him. And the one thing I want to point to you about verse 30 that's super important is the order of what they reported. 
First of all, they reported all that they had done, and then all that they taught. Jesus, it was great. Oh, man, there were some demons over in this town. It was awesome. There were some sick people over here, and we anointed them with oil, and we did all this. Yeah, and, and, we, and, we, and we taught as well. Yeah, we did some teaching. But man, it was so cool. Just, I mean, who's done this besides like you? And it's just pretty much you and us. It's the 13 of us. I mean, we are in a league of our own. You can see early on in the disciples' ministry, there's just this authority and there's something about even the privilege that comes with serving Christ that is doing something in their hearts. They're seeking and, secure, they're, they're seeking and securing significance. And they've got their priorities backwards. As we'll see in the next story, Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place, secluded place and let's rest a while. He wants time with the disciples and he doesn't even get time in the next several stories because they just, the, 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 the crowds just keep bombarding him and his ministry is basically written for him providentially and he accepts that. But he is seeking to instruct his disciples and he realizes he's got his hands full uh, getting his disciples where they need to be. They are not where John the Baptist was. What is it about John the Baptist that was so successful? And I want to leave you with this, these exhortations. What was so distinct about John the Baptist was the reason why he was faithful in this cost of evangelism is because of two things. Number one, he practiced repentance. And number two, then he preached repentance. He practiced repentance and then he preached repentance. What's so difficult about faithful evangelism is the ongoing, unnatural work of continual need for humility and brokenness that are required for an evangelist. Then he talked about it at the communion. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. And you hold out all the resources, all that we have to offer that the Lord could use, and we realize, oh, there's actually nothing there. I don't even have an intention I can offer you. I don't even have a resource. I don't even have a gift. I don't even have a... I, in fact, all I'm bringing to this equation is liability. I, I, all I can offer you, Lord, is lack. That's it. I can find ways to be proud of my own evangelism. How gross is that? Thomas Hooker said, the heart must be broken and humbled before the Lord will own it as his take up his abode with it and rule in it. For us to be faithful evangelists, we need to have our conscience cleansed, we need to have our sin forgiven, and then when we're restored to Christ, as Psalm 51 says, then we will restore sinners and transgressors to your way. Faithful evangelists are broken people who are practicing repentance. This is the only way to avoid complacency that can come from a settled sort of contentedness in our corrupt condition, and if we find ourselves comfortable there, we won't, we won't have any more need. Or, if we see our need, but we grow comfortable relying on our own sufficiency, our own abilities, we won't actually repent and practice repentance. Thomas Hooker said it this way, Humiliation is the utter nothingness of the soul that we have no power. It's not in our choice to dispose of ourselves, nor yet to dispose of that which is an, another gives, nor yet safe to repine at his disposal. In a word, it is like a being engrafted into another stock. It must be cut off from the old plant and pared and then implanted. In contrition, we are cut off. In humiliation, paired, and so fit to be implanted into Christ by faith. And that's what it means to be practicing repentance. The only way John could have pulled the trigger to be faithful in Herod's face to say, my king, I say this with all respect to you, you are not lawful. You are living guilty before your God. The only way he could do that, the only way he could live in prison content for two years is to have been practicing repentance. And then and only then can we preach repentance. I remember one time we had uh, unbelieving neighbors over for dinner and we were so excited just to get some time with them. And um, 
my wife and I had prepared a meal. We sat down at the dinner table and we started talking. And I had, you know, I think I had prayed, if I remember right, I think we had prayed that just that we'd be able to have normal, natural conversation that would talk about truth and be able to minister to them in something profound and hopefully useful because we, we knew that they did not know Christ. And the Lord answered that prayer. It was like we just, they kind of started asking me about church, how things are going at church. Because I was, I, this is about 15 years ago. I was a young pastor at the time. And so we started talking about church and started talking about how I became a pastor. And I started telling them my testimony. And I'm just thinking, this is so sweet. The Lord just paved the road to have this conversation. And so there we were. And I was, had the privilege to be able to boast in Christ. And this is what I was doing. This is how I was living. The Lord just got a hold of me. And, and it was just incredible. And I just, the gospel is so amazing. And I can't believe I get to be a Christian and I get to serve in the church. And kind of finished the story. And my friend says, Huh, that's, that's great for you. And the conversation just continued on. And I'm sitting there staring at that response. That's great for you. And I was very grateful because I, I, I believe it genuinely had the opportunity to boast in Christ who saved me from my sins. And he awoke me from spiritual death. I'm so grateful for that. I boasted in that, got to brag about that. That's great. And then he says, that's great for you. I'm thinking it's hearing, it's like ringing in my head. I'm like, like and the conversation just kind of meanders away. And I'm like, no, I want it back. What was I lacking? I was lacking repentance. No, it's, friends, actually, it's, it's not okay just for me. Unless you too repent, you will likewise perish. You're guilty like me. You must turn from your sin. That's what Christ calls us to. That's what he calls us to. So let's consider the cost of evangelism. And let's make sure that we are practicing and preaching repentance. Lord, thank you so much for this story. Thank you so much for how powerfully it teaches us about our own hearts. We're not surprised. You, you tell a story with perfection. We are just amazed and so thankful for how you can instruct us, how you can correct us, and how you can just keep ministering to us in spite of our sin, in spite of our, our stubbornness, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our inadequacies, in spite of our blindness, in spite of gross self-reliance. Lord, you keep bringing us back to renounce everything that has to do with self. What a privilege. And so, Lord, as a church, we just pray this corporately. As a church, could we be composed of, a, of individual Christians who are so thrilled to just renounce ourselves entirely so that you could do whatever you want through Grace Bible Church and Gilbert Bible Church. That's what we want, Lord. Um, even the fact that we would want that, that was put there by you, we know that does not even come from us. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.